Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is Melissa Rechtenwalt, founder and financial advisor at Evie Financial. Thank you for joining me, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me. I always like to start off the podcast, one of my favorite parts, beginning and end. You kind of sandwich everything else in the middle, but my favorite question to kick things off with is just to let you talk to the audience about yourself. We'd like to learn more about our guest, in particular, your journey into financial services and what that looks like. Absolutely. Um, so my, as I mentioned, my journey into financial services uh, started with a little bit of a bang. Um, I moved out to the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area about 16, almost 17 years ago and took one of the very first jobs that was offered to me, which happened to be uh, an assistant to a financial planner. Um, I didn't know that that job existed. I had no idea what that meant, um, but it was a great opportunity. I had bills to pay. And so it sounded like, let's do that for a little bit, see how it goes. Um, I, within a couple of months, fell madly in love with the career, the clients, all of that, um, but was in a position where it was very restrictive in terms of, I was with a credit union system. Um, and so there were about two, three things that we could provide our clients in terms of what solutions we had for them. And it was just it was a bit of a struggle trying to fit everyone into that very small box. So um, my career has in financial services for the last almost 17 years now has been about finding that balance between what I want to offer my clients, how I want to structure my practice and my business, how I want to serve my clients. How do we get to that point to be able to do it the way that we want? So it's been uh, uh, not a roller coaster, but yeah, some meandering has happened. Um, moved to a couple of different firms in that process. Uh, started another firm with another business partner a couple of years ago, um, and ultimately ended up here uh, at Evie um, with you know kind of all of those pieces and parts coming together. So it's been um, an interesting journey, but one that I would certainly not uh, look back on negatively. So a couple of follow-up questions. What were you, you mentioned that you didn't know what assistant to a financial planner might entail. And what were you going to do before? Like when you sat down to, well, uh, now my, my age is showing through. When you sat down to look at the postings in the newspaper, no, you were probably online, but um, when you sat down to look at what was available, or, or even before you sat down, what were you looking for? So I initially started my um, sort of formal education um, in computer science, which I think a lot of people find amusing. Um, I also find that amusing because it's not at all what I wanted to do, but I felt like it will lead to a career that's maybe sustainable and maybe a little bit enjoyable. We'll see. Um, but I ultimately ended up taking some time off from college because not surprisingly, computer science wasn't my jam. Um, and so decided to take a step back. I, when we then moved, uh, from central Illinois to the East coast, um, I was really just looking for a job and there was something that was kind of nice about, well, it's in an office setting, you know, it's a professional setting. I want to put on a suit every once in a while. That might be fun. And the financial planning side of things like, okay, I mean, I don't really know what that means, but we will try and kind of see what that looks like. It seems like a relatively easy, <laughs> relatively consistent job. And I think that that's what I want. So we did that. And again, just sort of fell in love with the career very quickly. So it was 
that was a roller coaster for sure. <laughs> Figuring out what that looked like, what that career was actually going to entail, and then sort of how that's morphed over time is still amazing to me. <laughs> but that's how we got there. So you said fell in love with with the industry and in particular with the clients. Do you remember that moment where, you know, was it a day? Was it over time when you went home and said, wow, this is, we have a lot in common. This is why I'm digging into this yeah. question. I've got some of the similar experiences, but you know, what, when was it or what was it that helped you realize this is what you wanted to do with your life? Yeah. So I think it, when I sort of was catapulted out this way um, to the Virginia, Maryland, DC area, didn't have a huge network, didn't have a lot of, you know, close-knit friends here. In fact, zero, uh, to be exact. And so having that career and being in the credit union system, there's no prospecting. <laughs> there's no marketing that takes place. People just walk in, walk into the financial advisor's office when they have an appointment in most cases, <laughs> and then just talk freely about their financial life. My desk was right outside of her office in the branch setting, and I could hear those conversations. But most of those conversations were so much focused on not the financial side of things, not the number crunching, not how their investments were doing, but what was going on in their life? You know, how are the kids? When, you know, are we still planning for this retirement that's coming up? And there was something very personal about that that I just felt like, oh, well, I, I didn't realize there was this side of the career. And it was a couple of months of just hearing those same conversations over and over again um, that I felt like, oh, man, this is really helpful to people. And it's also a very personal situation that I want to be a part of. So it, um, I didn't know that I was going to ultimately become an advisor, um, but I did because that advisor left somewhat in the middle of the night, um, not on bad terms, but just decided she was done. That was about the 2008 timeframe. So that may provide some context. Um, but then I got licensed very quickly um, and just sort of dove into having those conversations and essentially repeating everything that she said um, while I was listening to her. So it just ended up being this really nice marriage between that personal side and the actual number crunching side of things, which I ultimately fell in love with also. Everything happens for a reason. That's a great story. Thank you. Um, so you founded Evie, I believe, in 2018. So there's a bit of a gap between 2008 and 2018. But let's talk about what prompted you to start your own practice in the independent space and, in particular, any resources that you used potentially to help you, one, make the decision, and once the decision was made, actually implement. Absolutely. So, again, I started on the credit union side of things. People just walked into the office or a teller would walk someone over and say, hey, they have a Roth IRA that they want to open. Please help them with that. So I was very much used to that environment. I worked in that, um, that environment for about four years, almost five years. Um, but while that was nice, not having the marketing and the prospecting side of things as a burden on me, um, it was a lot to deal with the very small box of stuff that we could help our clients with. I mean, there was a very clear, we use American funds, mutual funds. Okay, that's fine, but that's all we've got. We've got no other finance. There's no financial planning. There's no fee-based financial planning. This was a little bit before that started to become a relatively normal thing. Um, but it felt so restrictive that I said, okay, I wanna be able to help my clients and allow them to achieve what they wanna achieve financially. 
how am I supposed to do that if I only have these three things that I can provide them to help? And I can't provide that comprehensive financial planning side of things that I really enjoy. So it took a couple of firm jumps. So moving to sort of a semi-independent firm um, and then another semi-independent firm and just figuring out, okay, as we start to kind of break open that box a little bit and get more tools and more resources that we can use to our clients, what is used for our clients? What is the end goal there? The end goal for me was to have a truly independent practice. And that's what brought me back to Cambridge. Um, I think some people know my sort of initial story where I was with um, uh, another two advisors as a sort of small ensemble practice. When we initially made that move to the independent side of things, because we all had the same thought, we came to Cambridge initially. That was in 2012. Um, we were with Cambridge for about three and a half years. We then moved on to something else for another opportunity. But when I decided I was going to start EV and truly take this practice in the direction that I wanted solo, I knew that Cambridge was one of those options <laughs> to say, okay, this is a truly independent space. What are the other things that I'm looking for in this sort of partnership behind the scenes? One of that was a strong community, which Cambridge has without question. Um, the other part of that was having a little bit more of a diverse uh, group of folks that were out there, which is also what Cambridge had or was at least building on. Um, and so that really solidified moving, making that move back to the independent space and making that move specifically with Cambridge, because I felt like I wasn't on an island. Um, I feel like one of the biggest concerns and one of the biggest fears on taking that leap, because it is absolutely a leap to the independent side, is feeling like you're by yourself. If you don't have that ensemble, if you don't have that support or that big company that's behind you, it can absolutely feel like you're just floating around on an island doing your best. <laughs> that's fine. But I needed a little bit more structure and a little bit more support there to make that move and feel completely confident in making that move. So that's where all of that came from to get from point A to point B to point C to kind of where we're at now with a truly independent firm. Yeah, we're very honored and, and uh, fortunate that you came back for a second tour. You're doing mm -hmm. amazing things, so you should be very proud. But I guess I would ask, you know, maybe the elephant in the room question for some people listening to this might be, did the jumps, did those other firms, did that other experience do you feel like it just delayed you from getting to the final end or was it really a stepping stone? Did it help? Did you gain? Sometimes it's critical to know what you don't want to figure out exactly what you do want. Is that what you experienced or would you have, do you looking back, think that you could have just made the leap on your own to begin with? So I have thought about that multiple times over the course of my career. Like, did I give up almost a decade of my career and kind of moving around and trying to figure this out and piece it together. The answer and the very honest answer is no, I don't regret those moves. I do not regret those jumps. Um, I think that I needed a little bit of a step, a couple of steps into from the credit union side of things, where again, people just walk in. <laughs> you don't, there's not a whole lot you need to do except show up and look nice and talk professionally and that's it. Okay, we can do that. But in moving into each one of those other firm settings and then ultimately the ensemble setting, that was with each one of those moves, I was able to take something with me and to say, okay, 
this is a lesson that I'm going to learn here, like fully understanding compensation behind the scenes and fully understanding what products and services I do have the ability to offer and how that fits in with this bigger picture of growth for my own firm. All of that I was able to gain by having some of these stepping stones. I think some other advisors would say, man, yeah, that's a lot of moving around. Um, Agreed. But without all of those moving around, I don't know that I would be here and have the knowledge and honestly, the patience (laughs) to do what I'm doing. Um, I don't think I would have that because I would not have all of those lessons along the way. So I'm grateful for them and I would not give them back for anything. Great advice. Thank you for digging a little deeper into that. Mm -hmm. So that's a great segue. Um, Coming from your beginnings, it sounds like you didn't have a lot of need for marketing. But let's talk a little bit about marketing today. Explain how those marketing skills um, that you've developed in your background translate into your role today as a financial advisor and a business owner. Absolutely. So I think One of the most exciting things for me, like the number crunching side of things is something that I can do. Uh, Quite obviously, I don't think I would be sitting here if I couldn't. Um, So that's sort of a natural skill that I have. But the marketing side of things, when I went back to school to get my MBA, um, because I knew that I wanted to start my own firm and also felt like I needed a little bit of educational support to do that, um, there was a program that was offered that was a dual program. Uh, finance degree and marketing degree. And I thought, you know what? I don't have enough on my plate. Let's do both. Um, We'll get it done. It'll be fine. Um, But I've always been really fascinated by the marketing side of things. Like the first time that I realized there was an arrow in the FedEx logo, it blew my mind. And that may be the dorkiest thing that comes out of my mouth today, but it's true. I just thought, man, what a smart and sort of creative way to say, yeah, like this is what we're about. This is our story. This is the service that we provide. It's very clear, even just looking at a logo or visiting somebody's website. I knew <laughs> that if I wanted to start this on my own as a true introvert, which I am, uh, I needed something that was going to help me do that because as an introvert, I think a lot of people think that I'm very quiet think that I'm very shy and reserved. Anyone who knows me outside of work does not think that, but it does mean being an introvert. I do a lot of processing, a lot of observing before I speak. And in that sometimes in this financial services industry, I think there are a lot of loud folks and that's not a cut to anybody (laughs) that there are a lot of big personalities, um, a lot of, I think, extroverted folks out there that thrive really well in these sort of positions. So I knew that as an introvert, I needed some assistance on competing essentially with those big loud voices that were out there. Um, Marketing was a way for me to do that. And I've spent a lot of time on our brand messaging and our story and our values and all of these different pieces to make it a much more natural a much more natural conversation with clients and a much more an easier way to connect with the brand and to connect ultimately with me as someone's advisor. So the marketing side of things has been incredibly, incredibly helpful because I don't have people just walking in the office. I have to rely on social media. I have to rely on my um, website. I have to rely on doing events out in the community. I have to rely on those things to have people continually coming in the door. So to understand that at a deeper level, I don't think everyone needs to get their MBA in marketing. But 
to have that additional education and then to apply that in my business has been so, so powerful. Did the education get you there alone or did you have to go out and hire some consultants along the way? So I've hired a handful of consultants along the way um, to help really just clarify some of those things. I think as business owners, a lot of us have sort of this running like, oh my gosh, there's so many things in my mind. There's this big plan here and there's five-year goal here and a 10-year goal here. It helps a lot to have someone to just say, okay, this is what we need to do. Can you please tell me how to implement that? So I've always been someone who has outsourced as much as I can, especially when I don't have the time, the energy, or the capacity to do those things. And while I understand marketing, it's absolutely helpful to have someone, even for like project-based things, like we just refreshed our website, to have someone look at that and say, okay, here are the things that I think you need to do to get that story and that messaging across. Really, really important, at least for me, in building out the brand. I've come to learn that there's a value to hiring a consultant to tell you you're on the right track. Like yeah. just knowing, I mean, you hopefully get some value in addition to that, maybe a different perspective, something that you missed. That's all great. Um, but if a large portion of what you're paying for ends up being, hey, you're re this is really cool. You did a great job and you're doing the right thing. It's still worth getting the outside validation that you're on the right track. Absolutely. You did really well with that. Thank you. So it's kind of connected. We talked a little bit about your website. You talk about values-based wealth management. Talk about, for the audience, how that comes into play when you're looking to onboard your new clients. And are there certain values or attributes that you actually look for in the client from a synergistic perspective? Absolutely. So initially, when I wrote values-based wealth management, just wrote it down to then ultimately be put on the website, my initial intent was to really focus on the social and sustainable side of wealth management um, and to focus on the ESG or environmentally friendly, those types of values in the actual investment management process. But when we went through that with a consultant, when we went through that website refresh and kind of building out some of that content a little bit more, I realized, uh, kind of independent of those discussions, that the values-based wealth management really is part of our overall brand. We put our values, our firm values, and my personal values in the EV name. It's literally there for everyone's convenience. <laughs> stands for education, vitality, independence, and empowerment. Those are the things that I want my clients to feel and get when they work with us. Um, and so that values-based wealth management really comes into play on that side of things too. It's not just about having someone have their investments be socially conscious or have impact or anything like that, although that's helpful um, and beneficial and something that's important to me, but the values-based wealth management and financial planning that's actually part of our firm values, I think is a lot more important. When I'm bringing on a client, when I have an introductory call with a client and we jump on Zoom or a phone call or they stop by the office, they come in and one of two things will happen. People will just start spewing out their stream of consciousness on why they reached out, what they're looking for, the concerns and you know things that they want to have more information on. That will just naturally happen. Or they will say, I've met with several financial planners before or one or two before, and this is sort of, this is what I got and it's not what I was looking for. So 
when we are then able to talk about, all right, this is how we're different. And this is maybe part of that marketing discussion, but this is how we're different. These are the values that I have as a human, that I see in you as a human, and that I think our firm is going to help you sort of realize in your financial life. That's a really powerful moment between clients uh, and myself as their advisor. So when we're talking about bringing on new clients, I want to make sure that they understand where we're coming from, from a values perspective, the things that are important to us. But then I also want to understand what's important to them. In that first 30 minutes or 20 minutes that we're talking, I can very quickly discern what someone's values are as another human. (laughs) It's very easy for me to say, you're a really good fit for EV, for our culture here, for how I work with clients and what you want out of this process. If that's not the case, okay, fine. We're okay. I will send you off to you know someone else who might be a better fit for you. But if those values don't align, I know that it's not going to be a long-term relationship for us as a firm or for them as a client. So we want to make sure that we're talking through that initially um, so that there's not a mismatch. Do you ever run into clients where a lot of their personal values and the values of yourself and the firm start to align, but that they're really uneducated about the whole social and sustainable ESG philosophy? And do you find yourself educating them at that point, or are they just not the right fit at that point? How do you handle that? So I focus on education first. That's why it's the first E and EV. Um, it is something that's really important to me personally and also professionally. Um, and so I am happy to provide that education to a client who doesn't have it. The one thing that I don't want to do is create this situation where, which I think a lot of clients have had this experience with an advisor where it's sort of, I'm the expert up here sitting in this high perch and you're down here and you don't know what ESG investing is, or you don't know what a mutual fund is or how an index fund works. And so I'm going to talk from here down here to you um, so that you can hopefully get on my level. I bring it down to be on the client's level and say, okay, here's Here's the basics of what you, the part that you don't understand, whether that's socially, uh, social and sustainable investing, ESG investing, or something else. We want to make sure that we're having that education discussion first. And I am a natural educator. It sounds weird for me to say that out loud, but other people have told me, so we're going to go with that. Um, So that is very easy for me to do. Um, And I think clients appreciate that a lot as opposed to being, you know, talked down to and feeling like they don't understand. We can educate ourselves together. I will help you with that. You will be brought up to a level where you feel confident in what you want to do and how you want to invest your dollars. That's the whole part of this, this relationship. So I always try and provide that education as best I can. I think it's a good method. A lot of our very successful financial professionals across the board, maybe they didn't have an education background, some did, and then decided this was a good leap uh, for them because it is education-based. Not everyone has to build it that way, but many of them do choose to start in and then continue in the method that you're talking about. I think most importantly, maybe it just helps them figure out if they're aligned with the right clients or not, which is right. so key. Um, I know at the beginning of everybody's business, you got to take whoever fogs a mirror to use an old saying, but at some point it's much more fulfilling to be able to know that you're working with people that do align from a core value perspective. And that's helpful. Yep. I agree. So you're also a member of our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council. Thank you for your service and time. That is comprised of financial professionals across our firm who helped us develop strategies regarding diversity, equality, and inclusion in the industry. 
talk about that and what it means to you and why you volunteered to help us with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, man, this is a doozy of a topic, um, but... Yeah, we could spend two hours, <laughs> yes, I suppose. Yes, but. <laughs> it will not, I promise. Um, but um, it has... So, and this may seem a little bit silly to say out loud because I think anyone who sees me in real life understands that I am a minority on one level or another um, as, you know, someone who's got full sleeve of tattoos, brown skin, and I'm under the age of 40. Um, if you didn't know that surprise, I'm under the age of 40 um, for everyone listening. Um, but that has been it's always been very apparent to me um, that I walk into a room over the last 16, 17 years of doing this, walk into a conference, there's maybe one who's also an outlier or another minority who's sitting kind of off to the corner, just not taking up a lot of space. Um, while I realize that that is not just in the financial services industry, it has always been something, to me at least, that I wanted to make sure if there was a way to improve that um, or even selfishly make myself feel better when I walked into a room and I wasn't the only other, um, that would be a move in the right direction. So when there was a call for applications for the initial advisory council um, with Cambridge for the DEI initiatives, it was something that I thought, okay, I, again, don't exactly know how this is going to go or what we're going to focus on, but my guess is that a voice like mine and like some of the other advisors and home office associates who are on that council can truly provide some insight and perspective and hopefully some forward movement in that space. So it has always been something that's been important to me. I think over the last couple of years, it's been much more prominent um, across the board. A lot of people are a lot more focused on that. Um, and I think that Again, one of the reasons that I came back to Cambridge was because of the community of women. So I realized that that was something that was very strong when I was at Cambridge previously. When I came back, I was happy to find out that it was thriving. Um, and I think a lot of firms, institutions within the financial services industry have done a really good job on that front and taking that step towards creating a women's initiative, moving that needle forward. And it's so, so powerful to see. But I think what sometimes is lost in the DEI space is that it's not just women. It's not just promoting women to advisor roles. Um, it's not just promoting women into leadership um, and very visible roles. It is also about the other parts of diversity and inclusion, which you know expands to all different things: um, mental and physical abilities um, or capabilities, um, race obviously the gender piece, um, sexuality, all of those different components. And I think that while there have been some significant strides in that sort of initial, let's elevate the women side of things, I think that's amazing, but there's a lot more work that I think that can be done. Um, I think it's important to remember on the DEI space that it's not always a wrecking ball, but there's a big wall um, for lots of different reasons. And this is not just in financial services. It spans so many industries. I think we know that really well. Um, but breaking down some of these systemic issues behind the scenes takes more than just an advisory council. It takes more than just, you know, some panels and some initiatives on this front. It does take a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of commitment. And 
again, it's not a wrecking ball all the time. Smashing into those systems, smashing into that systemic stuff, it's sometimes an ice pick. And I feel like a lot of us are on that ice pick journey right now where we're just, okay, every day we're going to try and be a little bit better. We're going to try and be a little bit more inclusive. Um, and we're going to try and pay attention to some of those things. I think a lot of people are starting to move in that direction, which is really refreshing. Um, so it's, it's so, so important. We are making moves there, I think specifically in the financial services industry. Um, but it has never lost on me that there's still a lot to do. Yeah. And it takes a lot of courage. I think for those of you that are standing up and becoming involved publicly, whether that be within Cambridge or other places, um, will hopefully put some wind beneath the wings of the individuals who feel the same way you do. They just aren't really ready to put themselves out there because there is some moments of vulnerability when you start to take a stand and make comments about how change is important. So thank you for doing that. Speaking of vulnerability, I have to ask this question. You just listed off at least four that I made note of categories of uh, DE&I that are now being or should be focused on, in my opinion, um, minority, female, tattoos, age, uh, any one of them get in your way along the way more so than another? Did you feel, I mean, they're all important and they're all, I'm sure you've got an, a, a story of an obstacle in every category, but was there something in one of those areas that felt like it was the biggest mountain you had to climb? So it has always been uh, twofold. Um, I think the gender side of things, being a woman in this industry, and then also being a biracial Black woman in this industry, um, has made, it has not created obstacles, but it has automatically put me in certain positions. So for instance, um, with my previous ensemble firm, I was sort of touted as like, you're the triple threat. So she's she's here, she's part of our firm, she's the future of financial services, but there was never any support there. So it was very much a, look at us, we're doing the thing, except we're not really. <laughs> we're just talking about the thing. Check the box. Yes, exactly. So it was just checking the box. It was to build someone else's empire and to use me as sort of a stepping stool to get there. Um, while I don't appreciate, while I don't, I'm not upset about that hustle and that grind. <laughs> I get it. Do what you need to do. Um, as a human, that didn't feel great. So that has been, I think, one of the things that keeps me focused on the DE&I side of things and moving forward, or at least trying to move forward um, with some of these initiatives. And I will say, I get a lot of comments on the tattoo side of things, um, but it has literally never once been a barrier to business. In fact, I think sometimes it is a, um, it's an extra bonus for clients. So they love it. So I'm appreciative of that too. <laughs> yeah, I think things are changing for sure. I mean, lawyers and doctors and all the, you know, educators, just ask. Most of them have one. They might be hidden, but they're there. So it's becoming a little bit more accepted for sure. Though there's probably some old guard that still would not hire someone that walked in with a sleeve, to your point. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just curious. All right. Switching gears on your website, it also says that you have one personal money mantra. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. How do you leverage that approach while guiding your clients? Absolutely. So it is this personal money mantra. I actually didn't have one for a really long time, except um, 
to not be struggling. That was it. That was my only only money mantra for a very- Can I go to the grocery store? Can I fill up my gas tank? Yes. Okay, great. Let's move on. Um, So when I have transitioned into a different period in my life um, and started to get a little bit more confident in my own financial positioning, um, the earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can, just really resonated with me. Um, it's something that came up in studying for my one of my recent designations, um, the chartered, oh gosh, I'm gonna mess this up, <laughs> the chartered socially responsible investment counselor, CSRIC designation. Um, that was part of the curriculum. So it's part of the training and kind of where that came from. So the save all you can, earn all you can, and give all you can is something that absolutely resonates with me, but it also really resonates with clients. Um, so but in all of that, it can be very easy to say, yeah, we want to earn every single penny that we possibly can. I try and take that down a notch and say, no, earn all you can isn't necessarily about making X amount of dollars or meeting some you know, sort of arbitrary <laughs> milestone in your earnings. It is more about understanding what you really need to earn to live the life that you want. Um, we always start there with clients. The save all you can reaches sort of that next level of financial planning and financial wellness, using those dollars from the earn all you can piece to then fund your goals and prepare for whatever your future self is preparing for. That's the save and slash invest all you can side of things. Um, But it also means spending some and saving some for our own self. I think there are a lot of advisors who just kind of put blinders on and focus on just set aside everything you can, just bank every dollar that you possibly can. I am one of those that, yes, absolutely, let's try and do that, but also treat yourself. (laughs) Go get the facial, go get your manicure and pedicure, like go do those things because those are just as important to our wellness, our overall wellness, as setting aside, you know, our max amount for our IRA each year. So, and then it's the give all you can side of things, which is sort of my personal desire um, in my own personal life, in my professional life. Um, But for clients, that does not always mean give from a philanthropic or a charitable perspective, although that's great. We can talk about that um, if that's the case. But if it's not, that give all you can piece is really meant to be what is the legacy that we're trying to provide or what we're trying to pass down to other generations or other people, whatever it is. What does that give all you can? It really gets to the why of why we're doing the wealth management side of things, why we're doing the financial planning side of things. What is that true why? And that's the give all you can piece. So all of those things come together, usually not in the first meeting that I have with a client, but in second, third, fourth meetings, we always talk about these pieces. I think it's easy to sort of silo them out a little bit but then also bring them together as kind of that full picture to say, all right, here's what we need to focus on. Here's what we need to do to get this earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can mantra in your life. So that's usually how I I set it up for clients and how we talk through it over time. I love it. Um, It's a very simplistic way to get them to talk about what's important to them, which then gives you all the in-depth knowledge that you need to do the right thing for them. So we talked a little bit about education. You've presented at several regional and national conferences for Cambridge and as well as others. You teach classes focused on financial empowerment. Talk about the importance of spreading that financial awareness down to the younger generations today. Absolutely. It is 
It's so, so, so important. Um, and I can share a little bit of my personal story on this side of things and why this is such a powerful piece. Um, but I, when I was growing up, lived in central Illinois in a tiny little town. I joke that we lived in the middle of a cornfield. We didn't actually, but it was close enough that that counts. Um, so we did not have a lot. We weren't poor, but minimal means uh, as, as a family um, and struggled a lot. Even though my parents didn't talk about that, we never talked about that as a family unit. That wasn't a dinner table discussion on how are we going to pay the light bill? Do you have enough to go on your basketball field trip? Like, do we have all of these things? We never talked about it, but you could just tell there was tenseness and there was anxiety around the whole financial side of things. When I was young, I, again, had no idea that a financial advisor was a thing. I didn't know you could be a financial planner. I didn't know you needed a financial planner um, in your life. But going through that with my family and just seeing that um, and living through that on a day-to-day -day basis, there was a tiny spark that was lit in me that said, if we can educate ourselves out of this, so if we can learn all of the things, not necessarily getting multiple degrees, although I ultimately ended up doing that, um, not necessarily getting those formal degrees in this information, but if I can educate myself enough, understand enough about the financial side of things, the money side of things, maybe I won't be in this position, I can help myself, I can help my siblings, I can help my parents to not be in this position. That has now <laughs> radiated throughout doing these financial wellness and financial empowerment workshops and classes to say, all right, a lot of us didn't have that education growing up. Um, still, that's a pretty common thing. Talking about money and talking about your financial state of the union is taboo still for a lot of folks. So I focus a lot on that and saying, look, one, it doesn't have to be a taboo subject. This can be something that's super empowering. It doesn't have to be shameful. You don't have to lose your confidence when talking about money. There's a way to educate yourself out of this to get enough knowledge to start making some of those steps in the right direction for your financial life. So I think it's really powerful for parents to talk to their kids about money, uh, whatever that looks like. I think maybe we don't have to share all the struggle side of things, but I think it's important to talk through those and be candid and transparent about those things. If I can provide that to a group of folks um, and they get one nugget uh, from that, then I have fulfilled my give all you can purpose because that's what I'm here to do. Well, it's very admirable, and I think you're spot on. It's somewhat of a generational thing that we're tackling here, and you know, another form of diversity in some ways, where generationally those things weren't talked about, but I do hear from younger advisors who are trying to change that for their own families as well as others. So that's really great. And it sounds like, while you may not have known what a financial planning assistant or financial planning career would look like you were actually thinking about it when you were younger you just didn't know it so it's funny how it all comes full circle yes for sure it is and I say that a lot like I know I didn't know that that's what I wanted to be but man the universe said here you go <laughs> this is where you're supposed to be and this is what you're supposed to be doing it all came together that's awesome well, the way I like to wrap this up, because a lot of people who, uh, you know, you're in a more, in my mind, more of my um, 
the category of I fell into this accidentally, but some people are thinking about it. They're considering our admirable career as an option and then they shy away from it because there's a variety of reasons, but oftentimes it just doesn't sound like that much fun to the younger generations. You know, we're workaholics. All we're doing is thinking about money. So talk about what you do for fun. Let's inspire them that this can be a rewarding career, but also allow some free time. What do you do? Yeah. So in my free time, when I do have that, and I do have that, <laughs> um, I there's a couple of things on the home front that I really enjoy. I'm slightly obsessed with my dog, although he is more obsessed with my husband than he is me. That's okay. Um, I try not to take that personally, um, but we spend a lot of time hanging out um, with up. Um, but in the beginning of the pandemic, um, we were all kind of hunkered down. Um, I decided I needed a little bit more life aside from my husband and the dog in the house. And so started, um, collecting houseplants. This is also a dorky thing to just put out there, but I'm obsessed with houseplants now also. So I brought in a couple and was like, this is nice. And now it's just turned into a whole thing. Um, so I spend a lot of time attending to my plants, um, which sounds a little bit boring on the more exciting side of things. Um, my husband and I spend a lot of time um, uh, listening to live music. Um, we go to a lot of shows, lots of concerts. We've traveled all over the country following a couple of our favorite bands. Um, it's just something that is an irreplaceable uh, experience for us, and we love it. Um, and then we also travel a lot. Uh, we're a fan of the combo vacation, so spending a couple of days doing some very touristy things, um, and then a couple of days literally just sleeping uh, in a very nice location. <laughs> so it's we try and do that a couple times a year, um, but those are the things that we do for fun. Um, I also read a lot, uh, consume a lot uh, on the education front, um, some self-help stuff, some memoirs, some business books, those types of things. Um, but those combination of things really fill up most of my free time. Oh, well, I feel so much better that my daughter, who's 25, is not crazy. Um, she she was given her first house. I do not have houseplants that need anything to keep them alive. They're not live. Right. It's the only thing that can work in my house. So when she first moved away from home and one of her coworkers at her first big girl job gave her a house plant and she called to tell me that she was becoming obsessed with this plant. And the last time I went to visit her, there were plants everywhere. I was like, <laughs> something's wrong. Like, I don't know what this is, but now I know it's not, a, it is a thing. There's more than just her out there. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining me on uh, my podcast. You're a great example of Cambridge Stronger. You're a great inspiration to young people in particular to make the leap, be brave, and ask for help where you need it. That's what I heard today. So thank you for sharing your story with us. And is there any last words that you think we haven't talked about that I haven't asked you that somebody should know? I mean, I don't think so. I think on the only last thing that I will say is that for younger folks coming into this business, yes, there are some hurdles. <laughs> there are some obstacles. There are some challenges. There's likely some meandering. Um, 
but it is worth it. This career is fun. You get to meet some amazing people, both on the client side of things and also the, you know, sort of home office, you know, industry side of things. And it is so, so fulfilling. If you find what your jam is, uh, like me, it can be a really just beautiful journey. Um, and so I, I think that's all I will say on that front. <laughs> what a beautiful way to wrap us up. Thanks again for coming. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. We are Cambridge Stronger.